we're starting a series this, this Sunday, today, uh, called The Four Gs, which is kind of an ambiguous title. It's, it seems kind of like insider language, but they're essentially four truths that we want to keep close to our heart, and, and they are four God is statements that have uh, subsequent repercussions, if you will, or advantages or promises attached to them. These are, these are the four truths. The first is God is great. So we don't have to be in control. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The second is God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. The third is God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And the fourth is God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. And these four truths come out of a book written by a man named Tim Chester called You Can Change. And this has been a tremendous resource for the pastors of redemption. So different congregations are using this book as well. Not only uh, just as we counsel and try to help others, because those four truths serve as great diagnostic tools when addressing sin in our own hearts, but also uh, just as we're working with others as well. And this has been a pretty influential book among the pastors. This is, you can pick this up at the comments for $10 today, and we've got a stockpile of them, so get out there and, and, and grab them. This will really help you, too, as we go through this series to, um, again, just kind of add another facet of what we're, we're talking about. Um, and, and this is important, and these four truths are important, not just, we're not celebrating four phrases, but, but we know be, behind uh, what we believe about God vertically affects our life horizontally. A.W. Tozer says this, the thing that comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And especially in the arena or in the realm of dealing with our sin and, 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 and working, working that out, um, we know that behind every sin is a lie against God. In, in Psalm 51, verse 4, after David has been confronted by Nathan, his sin against Bathsheba, the sin of adultery, he says this, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Every time we don't trust God's word, we believe the lie that we're better off without God. And, and our sin essentially says to God, God, I'm more important than you. And it's been that way ever since the beginning. And, and, and when we're thinking about sin, perhaps you think, well, it's just a matter of behavior modification. If I could just simply change some activity or change my behavior a little bit, that would fix it. But we know that what we need to do is we need to believe something different. We need to change the way that, we, that what we believe about God, and that's what brings true freedom. Spiritual growth or sanctification comes to your life when truth comes to bear on your heart. Spiritual growth is narrowing the gap between confessional faith and functional faith. Confessional faith, what I say about what I believe, what I say about God, and functional faith, what I actually do with my life. And so we're going to start today talking about the greatness of God. And God is great, so I don't have to be in control. Before we do, I want to ask that you would pray with me one more time. Don't just let me kind of pray over the top of you here and also in the conference center, but I want you to pray along with me because what we're about to endeavor, what we're about to dive into is not a natural thing. This is not simply a guy talking for 30 or 40 minutes about his opinion or trying to give you some good, solid advice. We're asking for the Spirit of God to reveal something about God to us. It's something that only he can do. And the absurdity of it all is that we're going to ask that God would use a man to do that. It's pretty overwhelming. And so I want, to, um, I want all of us to pray together that God would remove distractions in our midst. Um, for some of you, you're going to hear truths for the very first time. And that's an awesome thing. 
for some of you, I'm praying that it feels like the very first time, that God would be fresh and new to us this morning. So pray along with me, if you will. God, indeed, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. And God, um, I do, I, I pray for help. God, I, I pray that by your spirit, God, you would gift me with the gift of preaching. And I pray that you would remove distractions in this room and in our hearts and in our minds. God, would you do what only it, it is that you can do, and that is illuminate the scriptures, make them come alive to us. Um, God, interrupt where you need to interrupt. God, bring to mind things that someone here today really needs to hear from you. God, I, I just submit myself totally to you and, and ask that, God, in some way you'd be able to use me in the next moments here. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. When looking at a, um, a series like a God is type series, which is kind of something similar to what we're doing, these four statements about God, it, it's really, really difficult, if not impossible, right? And Aaron said last hour at the close of service, he said, the whole of Scripture does what we're trying to do in the next 30 or 40 minutes here. Talk about the greatness of God. And that's because he's indescribable. He's incomparable, right? In Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26, 28, Ezekiel gets a view into the throne room of God. And listen what he says, how he tries to describe it. He says, And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne, in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around and he says in verse 28, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. So, so listen to what Ezekiel's trying to describe. He's completely overwhelmed. He, he says, okay, there was this top part, and I saw this top part, and it was, like, it was like fire. And then I went over here, and I saw the bottom part, and, well, it was like fire too. And he said, how do I describe something that's completely overwhelming? He, he said, there was a rainbow. There was glowing metal. There was sapphire throne. He's just going on and on. He says, you know what? I just fell on my face. I was completely overwhelmed. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. First Timothy 6.16, Paul tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light. Isaiah chapter 40, here just some observations from Isaiah chapter 40. God is, is sovereign. He's powerful. He's in control of all things. God's greatness to us is good news. Verse 11 tells us he's a tender and capable shepherd. Verse 12, he's huge. He's all-knowing. He needs no counsel. He doesn't go to anybody for advice. Nothing can fill him. He's incomparable. He has control over the transcendent. He's powerful over creation. He sees everything. Thing. He's everlasting. He's eternal. He sustains all things. He holds all things together. He never gets tired. He never wears out. He never quits. He never taps out. Psalm 145.3, I told you we'd be in a lot of different places, says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. That word fathom, it's a term for measurement, specifically of the depth of water, which means his greatness is unmeasurable. The depth of his greatness is unmeasurable. He has all the power. There's nothing that he can't do. I think so often we forget that there is a holy creator and then there are created beings. The breath that we draw this morning, 
he allows us to do that. In his mercy and by his grace, I will finish the sermon this morning. That's a reality. We so often flip-flop, I think. The creator created. We turn that around. Sovereignty means he's in control of all things. Nothing escapes his notice. He's the one who holds the universe together. Psalm 62, 11, in the first part of 12, you should be there in your Bible. It says this, the psalmist writes this, One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving, or that with you is steadfast love. We see in the world that there are people who have good intentions, but no power or no resources. Like a lot of nonprofit organizations or people who are trying to do good things throughout the world, it always seems like they're always looking for more money, more people, more resources. And then almost in a kind of a weird irony, we see that there are people who have bad intentions and they seem to have all the power. We notice this with different dictators and things across the world stage. The great thing about God is that he has both good intentions or the best intentions and all the power. He's never for a lack of resources. We have lost perspective on how great God is. That's why a beginning like this, a talk like this, uh, four truths like this are so essential. I, I mentioned I have two daughters. The oldest is Evangeline Love. We call her Evie. And the youngest is Vera Grace. And uh, Evie is uh, not quite three yet. And Evie has, she's afraid of virtually everything. So crickets, flies, the vacuum cleaner, anything that makes noise kind of freaks her out. And so we were at the the pool the other day, and we've been kind of rehearsing with her, Joshua 1, 9, be strong and courageous. Lord, your God is with you always, wherever you go. And uh, we were at the pool in our neighborhood the other day, and, and we're kind of hanging out by the edge, and uh, a bee comes by, and she has a completely irrational fear of bees. I think it's irrational. She could be allergic. I don't know. She's never been stung. She might just have that insight. But anyway, I think it's irrational. So she, uh, the bee comes by, and she does the white knuckle, tiny fingernails in the neck, my skin's now in your fingernails type of thing. And so she's holding there and I said, Evie, I said, Evie, are you bigger than the bee? And she, she didn't really say yes. She just go, okay, daddy. And I said, and is daddy bigger than you? Okay, daddy. And so then kind of to add dramatic effect, I smashed the bee on the deck. Hopefully it doesn't sting me because that would mess up the whole illustration. And I, <laughs> So I smacked the bee, and she goes, night-night bee. I said, that's right. That's right. Night-night bee. But the point is, we need the perspective that God is bigger than our troubles. In light of the bigness and the grandeur and the glory of God, and the power and the control of God, how big is your problem? How big is your setback or your struggle? And, and I don't, for a minute, minim minimize or make little of the, stru the struggles or the issues or the concerns that you bring in here with you this morning. But we need to live out the reality that we find in Ephesians 3.20 that he's capable, that he's able, that he's dependable, that he can do things that exceed our expectations. But our present struggles cause us to lose perspective on God's past faithfulness. Our present struggles can cause us to lose perspective on God's past faithfulness. And so I want to look at three different scenarios and try to help us kind of recalibrate that and set that right this morning. 
There's more than three instances where this God is great, so I don't have to be in control, comes to bear in our life. But I want to look just for our purposes at three specifically. The first is this. God is great, so I don't have to be in control when everything is out of control. God is great, so I don't have to be in control when everything is out of control. There's two conversations in the scriptures I'm going to look at briefly. The first is found in the book of Job. If you're unfamiliar with Job's story, Job was a guy who had everything. Had a great family, wealthy, land, respect of uh, peers and neighbors and what have you. And, And Satan comes to God and says, well, of course Job loves you. Look at everything that you've given him. And, and God says, okay, well, I'll allow you to take all those things. Just don't touch Job. And so that is exactly what happens. He loses his family. He loses his wealth. He loses his livestock. He loses all these things. And Job utters the words that are very famous. We sing them in a song. The Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Satan comes back to God and he says, well, of course, he still praises you. Well, he still have his, his health. The scripture says skin for skin. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me touch him. Let me put my hands on him. And so God says, okay, just don't take his life. And so Job gets these giant boils all over him. And everything has been taken from Job. Now his health, his family, his stuff. The only thing that hasn't been taken is his wife. And he probably wishes that would happen because she's all over his case. And his friends kind of bail on all this stuff. And so it kind of gets to be a point in, in this story with Job that he kind of has an, enough is enough type of thing. And he does what all of us do when calamity or struggle strikes, begin to question God. God, do you really know what you're doing? Job chapter 38, I'm going to read from the message. It's a paraphrase. I like the language. And, and, and if you just bear with me as I read through this. And now finally, God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. And he said, why do you confuse the issue? Why do you talk without knowing what you're talking about? Pull yourself together, Job, up on your feet. Stand tall. I have some questions for you, and I want some straight answers. Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much. Who decided on its size? Certainly you know that. Who came up with the blueprints and measurements? How was its foundation poured? And who set the cornerstone while the morning stars sang in the chorus and all the angels shouted praise? And who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen, so it couldn't run loose and said, stay here, this is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined to this place. Have you ever gotten to the true bottom of things, explored the labyrinth caves of deep oceans? Do you know the first thing about death? Do you have one clue regarding death's dark mysteries? And do you have any idea how large this earth is? Speak up if you have even the beginning of an answer. Do you know where light comes from and where darkness lives so you can take them by the hand and lead them home when they get lost? Have you ever traveled to where snow is made or seen the vault where hail is stockpiled? Can you find your way to where lightning is launched or to the place where the wind blows? Or do you suppose carves canyons for the downpours of rains and charts the route of thunderstorms that bring water to unvisited fields, deserts no one ever lays eyes on, drenching the useless wasteland so they're carpeted with wildflowers and grass? And who do you think is the father of rain and dew and the mother of ice and frost? You don't for a minute imagine these marvels of weather just happen, do you? He begins to speak of the outer space and galaxies and the solar system. He says, can you catch the eye of the beautiful Pleiades sisters or distract Orion from his hunt? Can you get Venus to look your way or the great bear and her cubs to come out and play? Do you know the first thing about the sky's constellations and how they affect things on earth? And this actually goes on for a few chapters, and Job says, you're you're right. You are God, and you are great, and I am not. 
When life starts to fall apart, though, we question God. We can't really fault Job because we've all done the same thing. When you have a small view of God, you have this belief, this ridiculous belief that God was created for you. And so you start to ask a lot of questions of him, like, why don't you do this for me? Why don't you provide in this way that I want? Why don't you make it come out the way that I want it to come out? A small view of God causes us to become ungrateful. A small view of God causes us to forget that Jesus Christ came and and died and lived among us and, and allowed us to get up this morning, allows us to live, and every day that we have is love and mercy and grace, all of which are undeserved, unmerited. We've lost perspective on the greatness of God because I think we've turned him into our buddy. We are friends with God, and friendship with God is something that came at infinite and supreme cost to himself. And we have that, and we glory in that. We celebrate in that, that we are friends with God. But God is not our homeboy. He's not our buddy. God is not lonely. He's not looking for friends on Facebook. So how do we respond? We respond by talking about how big God is. Having a high view of God is the solution. For some of you, this might be very frustrating because you could be there thinking, you're thinking, well, can I just get a really practical talk on my issue? Can't you just tell me step by step how I can fix what's going wrong? This is better. It is better for you to see God for who he really is. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings, and with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The first line there is significant. In the year that King Uzziah died. You see, King Uzziah was a good king for the nation of Israel. When they had a good king, things were very good and prosperous for the land, for the nation. And when they had a bad king, things went really, really bad. And uh, Isaiah knows his history. He knows the cycle. So he knows up next is a bad king. And so Isaiah starts to kind of fret and worry and be anxious about the future over the next coming king. And so God... He says, look, don't worry about who is on the throne down there. Let me show you who's really on the throne. When Isaiah has his life kind of falling apart and he's experienced this anxiety and fear over the future, God doesn't come down and have this like Dr. Phil moment with him, telling him, hey, just have a positive mental attitude. Just tell Isaiah, do you realize how great you are? Like kind of really pump him up. He peels back heavens and he invites him into the throne room he says let me just show you what's really going on and again i know i know there is hurt and pain and suffering here today in this room and and then the next across campus and so i i don't want this to sound like just some young man in his idealistic view of life that hey it's all going to work out because i know there's pain every week you are faithful to fill out prayer requests and we thank you for that and our staff gathers and prays over those things and our hearts are broken for you because the things that you are going through are heartbreaking and not only are we sympathetic not only am i sympathetic to it but our great god is sympathetic towards it as well But the solution sometimes is not looking deeper at our issue, but it's looking at God and his throne and just standing in awe of who he is. And if I could somehow 
today supernaturally pull back the heavens, open up the roof, and you could peer into the throne room of God, you would not be thinking about your problems. I think we struggle with this because so often we wait on our circumstances to change before we praise the greatness of God. And if that's the case, then we will wait a long, long time. In the midst of our struggle, God is still great. In the midst of our struggle, he still forgives sins. He still redeems lives from the pit. He still heals our diseases. He is still God. In the midst of our struggle, he is still great. And when waves of doubt and disappointment happen, and they do, and they will, and perhaps they are today, rehearse the faithfulness of God so you have complete confidence in his ability. Trust in the character of God, not in your circumstances. I I think of of my testimony, especially when I was in college, I did everything that I could to either uh, get killed or thrown in jail. And, And God, by his grace and in his mercy, didn't allow either of those things to happen. And I start to think back that, especially when I share my testimony at 710 or something like that, and I start to tell my story, and I'm standing in the gap of where they are now to where I was and, and, and rehearse this over and over, the greatness of God, Jesus is better, over and over and over, the truth of the gospel, right? And I'm constantly reflecting on, wow, God, you, you, you got me out of that. I can't believe it. You, you saved me from that. You saved me from that. And the same God who saved me then is saving me today, despite my circumstances. David, when he stood before Goliath, when he stood before the giant, he rehearsed the faithfulness of God. What did he say? He said, the same God who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will save me here today. God is great, so I don't have to be in control when things are out of control. The second scenario where we see this truth come to bear in our life is God is great, so I don't have to be in control when things are in control or under control. God is great, so I don't have to be in control when things are in control or under control. For some of you, life is not a wreck this morning. Things are actually very good. There's a little money in the bank, right? Relationships are well. You're getting along with your spouse. Your kids seem to respect you or act like they're listening to you. That's a plus, right? Maybe you even got to go on a little vacation. You get out of the heat. Things are really dialed in. But we know that control is an illusion. James 4 tells us life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's in verse 13, James chapter 4. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. The great American heresy is that we don't need God. We are one nation under God, but that doesn't mean that we need him. And this is not just something that's prevalent in business or in the schools or whatever, you know, you want to speak out against. This has crept its way into the church as well. One of the things that I appreciate a lot about Tim, but one of the things that he's constantly talking to us about and, and warning us against, especially us younger pastors, is that the very scary notion and reality that ministry can be done without God. That I could, I could craft a, a speech for you this morning and spend our 30 or 40 minutes together and just simply give you a speech and the Spirit of God is nowhere near it. That's scary. That I could be sitting across the table in a counseling situation, discipleship situation, and I'm just simply giving good advice, things that I think are, are right. 
but the Spirit of God is nowhere near it. And, and I am all for systems and structures and programs and things that a church, I think we should do everything in an excellent way because of what I talked about earlier, because it's setting the table for the gospel to be heard and experienced. But we have to be so careful that we don't lean on those things as the power that fuels the church. In Luke chapter 12, verse 16 through 20, Jesus tells a parable and, and he says this, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is a teaching primarily on, on, on greed, which is a byproduct of control. And, and don't hear that in this, that I'm not teaching, that I'm, that I'm teaching that we shouldn't be ambitious. It's good to have a, a, ambition, right? But we are to be a people who are ambitious while prayerfully dependent on God. There are some signs that you might be trying to be in control, Anxious, you're, an, you're anxious about everything. There's anxiety that reigns over your life. Fear, you're afraid of what you will lose. You're afraid of what will be taken from you because it will uh, con conflict with your ability to control things. Anger when what you want to control is, is threatened. Possessive, insecurity, you second guess all your relationships. Discontent, that one stings, me anyway, I don't know about you, but you're never happy with what you have. You always want more. You want to control more things. Coveting, you want what other people have. Manipulating, micromanaging, sneaky manipulative. You, you kind of have that victim mentality. Uh, pride, lonely. You can't be vulnerable or taught or counseled. Maybe that's why some of you, you're not in a redemption community right now because that means that you would have to open up and lose control on your life a little bit. You'd have to kind of loose the reins a little bit on, on, your, on your own life. I think the scariest one, at least for, for me, the scariest one, would, would you're always trying to be in control, is that you start to excuse or minimize sin or rationalize sin. You say, well, it's just a little sin, and in fact, I'm just kind of always involved in this little sin so it doesn't give way to a bigger sin. That's how it works in your economy. But the good news is, the gospel news is, is that you don't have to live like that. That does not have to be the list that defines your life. There's an alternate list, a list that comes when you are prayerfully dependent on the Spirit of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It looks like this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, temperance. If I were to hold those two lists up and say, choose one, which would you choose? We would choose the latter, right? That's what we want attached to our life. If you're always trying to be in control, you cannot have that list. You cannot have a life that is marked by those things because it comes only through the Spirit and through you leaning on the Spirit. Two scenarios we've seen so far. God is great, so I don't have to be in control when things are out of control. And two, God is great, so I don't have to be in control when things are in control or under control. And the last is this. As we come to a close, the last is this. God is great, so I don't have to be in control when God has something for me to do. 
This one's a little bit tough for me because it didn't seem to fit with the other one. So the OCD in me was having a really hard time with the speaking of being in control. I was like, well, it doesn't seem to fit as, as well as the other ones. But when they, when they asked me to teach and they gave me an opportunity to teach, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about the Gilbert congregation specifically. And, and I just thought, okay, God, what do they need to hear? What's going on right now with them that they need to hear? And I believe and I feel that this congregation is on the precipice of God just doing something really great with us. I was talking to someone the other day, and they said for 15 years, there wasn't a whole lot that changed around here. In the past five years, we have seen just change after change after change. But that's a good thing. The church is not just an organization. It's an organism and organisms that are healthy, that are alive, that are vibrant, are changing and growing. And that's what's happening here. And so as I think about that, and I think about you, I think about us, it's like, God, you are doing all of these things because you, uh, you have us poised for something great, that you want to do something great in us and through us. And our desire to be in control, our desire to have our way and our preferences on on the forefront is in direct opposition to God working in us and through us. In Jeremiah chapter 18, God says to Jeremiah, he says, I want you to go down and I want you to observe the potter and how he works. And so he goes down there and he sees the potter and he sees him with the clay and he sees him mold it and shape it. And and there are sometimes when the potter needs to adapt and so he will kind of collapse the clay back in on itself and and change it and reform and reshape. And 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 he's creating it to use it in whatever way that he has in his mind. And Jeremiah watches all of this stuff happen and he says to him, can I not also do this with you? God asks a lot of rhetorical questions. That's another one because yes, he can. And I want to push on that for us a little bit, church. And I want to say, would we pray that he does that with us? Would we be so bold as to pray, God, would you reform, reshape, remold us so that you might be able to use us for the city of Gilbert and beyond? In Exodus chapter 3, there's a conversation between God and, and Moses. Maybe you're familiar with the story. God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush. And he says to him, Moses, I got something for you to do. Verse 10, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you'll worship God on this mountain. That wasn't enough for Moses, and he shows his insecurity. He says, well, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. Your God is so great that when Moses asked him what his name was, God could not confine himself to a particular description. So he announced his presence by saying, I am who I am. Whatever you need, that's what I am. He's saying, I am provider, I am comforter, I am rescuer, I am savior, I am healer, I am guidance, I am strength, I am wisdom, I am hope, I am promise, I am powerful, I am great. And so when God sends you to your work, your neighborhood, your family, your friends, wherever it is that he's sending you in life, he's saying, I am sending you. 
I am is working in you and through you. And church, he says of us, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Why? Because we're so great? Because we got it figured out? No, because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. It is a powerful God who works powerfully in us and through us for his great name and his fame and his renown and his glory and our greatest good and joy. And if we're trying to control things, we're going to miss it. This understanding of God's control and care and submission to that is seen most beautifully in the cross of Jesus Christ. In the last couple minutes here, I just want to work through kind of the last moments of Jesus' life here on earth. And we can see this picture through the Gospels. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays and he's acknowledging the authority of God in his life. And he says, you've granted me authority over all people that... I might give eternal life to those that you have given me. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. There's confidence in what you do when you submit to the authority of God. Jesus can say it is finished. He said what you gave me to do, I did. And the only accolade he looks forward to is the thing that we should look forward to and that's well done good and faithful. We're so preoccupied with trying to get a pat on the back from somebody else that we forget about at the end of our life. There is only one who will say anything that matters to us. In the gospel of Luke, the prayer at the garden, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. In John chapter 19, after Jesus has been arrested, he moves before Pilate. The Jewish leaders in 19 verse 7 insisted, we have a law and according to the law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Verse 8, and Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and rightly so. And he went back inside the palace, where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? And this is great. Jesus answered, he said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Submission to the authority of God, to the greatness of God in his life. And in his last moments, in Luke chapter 23, Jesus calls out on the cross with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. The centurion, the guard who was there at the foot of the cross, seeing what happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Surely he was without sin. Surely this is the son of God. What I love about that is when you submit to the greatness of God, the authority of God in your life, it glorifies Jesus. And so when people look at your life and they see that it's marked with these types of statements, God, I commit it to you, not my will, but you. And and they see that and and that is what you're known for. It glorifies Jesus and people want to know who he is. Psalm 62, 11, I want to revisit one more time. One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. God doesn't stutter. He just wants to make sure that we get it. The cross of Jesus Christ settled the goodness of God once and for all, and the empty tomb solidified his greatness. Amen? God is great. So I don't have to be in control. I want to give you four action points just as we leave. Four things to do with this. The first is to trust. We simply 
We simply believe about God what he says about himself. That God, you are great, so I don't have to be in control. We trust him in every area of our life, from finances to our health to our families to what we're, what we, where we're going to work, where we're going to live. We just trust God. The second, it kind of connects with that, and that's step forward. God has something for us to do. And for some of you, it means that you're going you're gonna to get on board here in a hospitality realm or a frontline realm. Some of you, it means you're going to step up with children's ministry or student ministry or 710. Uh, I said that one the loudest, notice. Or, or you're going you're gonna to work, work somewhere. You're going to step up on this campus because you are knowing that God um, is, has us poised to do something great in this community, in this city, and beyond. This is a great thing to counsel with, and you're going to see that as we go through these series, that all of these help as a diagnostic tool in our hearts. And then the, the last one is probably the most unnatural or unlike us or uncomfortable because we don't do it very often, and that's to simply behold your God. So like Ezekiel and like Isaiah, we just stand in awe of who he is. And we together, as his children, proclaim God. You are great, and you are greatly to be praised. We have an opportunity to do that, both here and in the conference center, in a time of communion, a time of worship afterwards. So pray with me, if you will, as the guys come. God, indeed, you are great. God, I'm so thankful that everything that we have said about you from the first song, uh, through our time of prayer, through, through what you spoke to us, through the, through the message, God, and, and now in this time of communion and in the time of worship, God, every word of it will be true. And God, it falls so short of what we should say. God, I, I, I pray for the person who for the very first time this morning heard just about how great you are. And God, I just pray that the beauty and the power of the cross would overwhelm them even now, God, especially as we head into this moment of communion. God, I, I pray for the, the, the Christian, the, the follower of Jesus, God, who just has been so overwhelmed with life, God, that they have lost sight of how great you are and God, that you are still in control. And so God, I just pray that you would just impress that upon their heart. God, we love you and we thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray, amen.